Back to our platform, the Reverend Dr. Leon Dunkley. Leon is a Unitarian Universalist minister, and before that was a professor of ethnomusicology at Duke University. As you have already heard, he is also a singer-songwriter, and it is a particular joy that he brings music with him when he comes to speak with us. And he's asked me to start with a reading. This reading comes from Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or for evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. There was a king with a large jaw and a queen with a plain face on the throne of England. There were a king with a large jaw and a queen with a fair face on the throne of France. In both countries, it was clearer than crystal to the lords of the state, preservers of loaves and fishes, that things in general were settled forever. It was the year of our Lord, 1,775. Best, worst, Wisdom, foolishness. Um, does anybody remember the old uh, Saturday, the original Saturday Night Live? And they have to, they used to have, um, what is it, sort of nightly updates or whatever that they called their news. And they'd pause for commercial breaks in between. Um, um, that was my favorite part. <laughs> um, I must have been 12 when I first started watching them. Um, there was one that I remember, and I'm embarrassed to start this sermon with this, but I, um, it was an argument between two people, um, probably Jane Curtin and Chevy Chase, I think. And um, Jane would say, it's a floor wax. And then Chevy Chase would say, no, it's a dessert topping. <laughs> it's a floor wax. It's a dessert topping. And then someone interrupted them, maybe Belushi, I guess, would say, calm down, you two. New Shimmer is a floor wax and a dessert topping. <laughs> so in a sense, that's the model for this sermon. <laughs> Hi, and good morning. I'm so glad that you've made it safely here. Um, settle in, it is good to be together. 
Um, it is good to be here again. I'm grateful for the invitation to speak on this particular weekend during which we recognize the birth and the life and the contributions of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, I have an odd question for you, but I, I cannot ask it yet. Um, I have to wait until a little later. Right now I have to ask you a different question, perhaps a more important question, a more basic question, if that's okay. Um, the question is, how are you today? But don't, don't answer it, don't answer it yet. Um, there's a story. There, there are actually at least two. Um, I have to ask this question. I have to ask how you are, because this is precisely what I have failed to do with the woman in the airport, uh, the woman to whom the opening song, True Believer, is dedicated. <clears throat> I had arrived uh, in the Raleigh-Durham airport uh, uh, departure terminal almost an hour before my flight was to leave. <clears throat> So I decided to get something to eat. Um, I was carrying my backpack over my right shoulder and I had my guitar in my left hand. And I looked around at my food options and I saw a woman <clears throat> who was dressed in fatigues. Um, and I failed to ask her that question. I didn't say, how are you today? Um, it was January of 2009. Um, I didn't think, to, I, didn't, I didn't ask a thing. Um, I just reacted. And I reacted by turning away. Um, my unreconciled feelings about the war in the Middle East um, must have seemed monstrously clear to her by my reaction. Um, I was embarrassed. I was dissatisfied with myself. <clears throat> Whatever my inward feelings were, I had delivered an outward disapproval to a, the woman in the airport, and that wasn't right. Um, I felt uh, I, I conveyed to her uh, that I was sorry for what I had done and that I deeply appreciated the personal sacrifice that she was making. Fortunately, uh, she was not offended. She laughed in recognition, and I beat, breathed a great sigh of relief. Uh, then I tried to figure out what I would have felt if I were the one in military dress. I tried empathy. I tried to hold both of our two stories at the same time. I tried to figure out what my life would be like if my life choices and my circumstances had been different. Uh, I wrote a song about that moment, and I dedicated that song to her. I want to win the wars of oil and masquerade as a welcome liberate. That's where that song comes from. <clears throat> uh, I wanted to stop feeling uh, terminally victimized and righteous uh, by my own inward political agenda, and I wanted to stop ignoring the different ways of living. Um, I didn't agree with the war then, and I don't agree with the war now. But I do understand that there are dignified and respectable people who do. Um, I hold on to those two things at once. I realize now, I know uh, more clearly, that the degree to which I am aware of these different ways of living, the degree to which I am self-aware, not self-absorbed or self-consumed, but self-aware, this degree prepares the way for peace and true happiness. To this end, I ask you, and please feel free to answer this time, how are you? I, uh, <laughs> I wonder what all of your answers are. <clears throat> I see, I see, perhaps, or mas or menos, which is the Spanish for so-so, or medium, or regular, or come see, come sa. 
which is the French, which means like this, like that, quickly acknowledging the presence of two different ways of feeling, two distinct experiences bundled up into a single response. One experience, a little good, another experience, a little bad. You can easily do things like that in foreign languages. And you can easily do it in English, too. Perhaps less beautifully, perhaps not. Uh, depends on how you look at it. Uh, for there is, of course, the plain spoken English translation of the more elegant Spanish and French phrases, which is, eh. <laughs> so how are you today? Eh. This exchange I find quite beautiful. Uh, you may feel differently, and that's okay. <clears throat> There's plenty of room for both. Eh. It is a fabulous expression. Uh, it behaves just like the Spanish and French example, more or less. It conveys the same thing, but succinctly, in just two letters, E-H. So efficient, so economical. Two letters explaining the presence of two different ways of feeling, distinct experiences, bold, bundled up into a single response. Uh, God help me, but I find the little things in life quite profound. So are you with this so far? Because it's going to get a little more complex. Um, staying present to two different ways of feeling, different ways of experiencing the world is challenging. It's hard because the complexity of inward experience does not always translate to the outer world. We use words like fine instead. Sometimes we speak a too narrow a truth out of habit or out of convenience, and then we drive ourselves nearly mad trying to be true to our word. We value that, I think. We value the integrity of our word. We value the integrity of our stories. We like their meaning, their clarity, their consequences. We like how our stories help to define us in inward and in outward ways. So it's important to tell our stories and to tell our stories well. No matter how simple or how complex and no matter how spectacular or how commonplace. Now, ever since... 2002, Arundhati Roy has been encouraging us to tell our stories, uh, not our story, singular, which is sometimes simple, but our stories, plural, which is necessarily complex. Arundhati Roy, are, are you familiar with this name? Uh, Roy is an author of fiction and nonfiction alike. She is a learned and a searing intellectual, a passionate an observer of American politics, culture, and influence in the world. She lives in Delhi, India, uh, which might seem strange for a critic of the American way. Uh, but Roy is wise. Uh, she addressed this point directly, explaining, and I'm quoting here, uh, you may think it bad matter, manners for a person like me, officially entered into the big book of modern nations as an Indian citizen, to come here and criticize the United States government. Speaking for myself, I am not a flag waver. I am no patriot. I am fully aware that venality, brutality, and hypocrisy are imprinted on the leaden soul of every state. But when a country ceases to be merely a country and becomes an empire, then the scale of operations changes dramatically. So I clarify that I speak as a subject of the American empire. I speak as a slave 
who presumes to criticize her king. A slave who would criticize her king. I wonder if Martin Luther King felt similarly when he wrote his famous letter from the jail in Birmingham or when he walked over the Edmunds Pettus Bridge in Selma or when he broke ranks and he came out against the war in Vietnam. You'll have to evaluate this for yourself to find out whether or not this idea is compelling. I find Roy to be fascinating. Arundhati Roy is the author of a long list of nonfiction works but is most widely recognized as the writer of a book called The God of Small Things. It won the Booker Prize in 1997. Clearly, she believes in the power of the written word. She believes in the integrity of the spoken word. She understands the power of our stories, the importance of writing. In an address called Come September, she explains that writers imagine that they cull stories from the world. But perhaps it is vanity that makes them think so. Perhaps it is actually the other way around. Stories cull writers from the world. Stories reveal themselves to us, the public narrative and the private narrative. Stories colonize us, they commission us, they insist on being told. Look, look down in, into your hands. Look, look down into your hands. Are you right-handed or left? Look down into your dominant hand, your writer's hand, and consider the importance of our words. Consider the power of our stories. Right now, and quite literally, we hold that power in our hands. Only we can tell the stories of our experience in the world, and the world is made richer in the telling. Stories colonize us, Roy explains. They commission us. They insist on being told. Stories colonize. Stories colonize. Not story colonizes, but stories colonize. It's a very important distinction to make. There is a required complexity. So Roy continues. Fiction and nonfiction are only different techniques of storytelling. For reasons that I don't fully understand, fiction dances out of me, and nonfiction is wrenched out by the aching, aching, broken world that I wake up to every morning. The theme of much of what I write, fiction as well as nonfiction, is the relationship between power and powerlessness, and the endless circular conflicts that they are engaged in. John Berger, that most wonderful writer once wrote, never again will a single story be told as if it is the only one. There can never be a single story. There are only different ways of seeing. So when I tell a story, I tell it not as an ideologue that wants to pit one absolutist ideology against another, but as a storyteller who wants to share her way of seeing, end quote. So what is your true way of seeing in this world in which we live? Are you a floor wax person? Or are you a dessert topping person? Or can you hold both at the same time? 
Charles Dickens did a very good job in 1859, in the last years before the Emancipation Proclamation and the beginning of the American Civil War, Dickens described a complex truth. He famously wrote, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, it was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness, it was the epoch of belief and incredulity, it was the season of light and darkness, it was the year of our Lord, 1775, England, 1775. Across the sea in the American colonies, it was the time of the battles of Lexington and Concord in the American Revolution. Across the Channel, it was 14 years before the revolution in France in 1789. Seventy years after that, in 1859, Charles Dickens would reflect, recognize the presence, recognizing the presence of two different ways of being, two different experiences bundled up into a single response. It is now January of 2017, and I say that fully aware that this is not a Star Trek episode. <laughs> 2017, 50 years ago, in April of 1967, on the 4th of April to be precise, a 38-year-old African-American preacher named Martin Luther King delivered an address at the Riverside Church in New York City on the west side. Martin King came out against the war in a powerful address called Beyond Vietnam. This address is simultaneously regarded as King's highest achievement and his most costly mistake. People feel one way or the other, but rarely both. Some even argue that this address is what cost Martin Luther King his life. For one year later, one year later to the day, on April 4th of 1968, Martin Luther King was killed by an assassin's bullet outside of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. One cannot but recognize the coincidence. I bring up this theory here not to draft your allegiance, allegiance in some way. I'm not trying to win hearts and minds for a particular cause. I'm trying to descend, to transcend that level of thinking, that level of being that level of speaking. I'm trying to broaden the reach of our understanding to stretch beyond the limits of a single narrative. I'm trying to be a decent storyteller, trying to make good sense of a complex world. And storytelling, I believe, is the best way to do it. And I am not alone in this belief, a Jewish political theorist named Hannah Arendt agrees. She believed in complexity, in the slow unfolding of our stories. And she wrote, storytelling reveals meaning without committing the error of defining it. Storytelling reveals meaning without committing the error of defining it. In other words, sometimes it takes time to understand the truth, especially considering its many pieces. Now, Arendt's words provide us with an opportunity. They amplify the words of the late John Berger, who passed just two weeks ago now in Paris uh, at 90 years of age. Berger said, never again will a single story be told as if it is the only one. 
how would it be if we were to take Berger's advice? So rather than choosing a story, rather than confining ourselves to a particular narrative, how would it be if we were to choose to live more expansively? How would it be if we were, allow ourse- if we were to allow ourselves to take a deeper breath, to live to a more expansive breath, a more inspired breath, and relax a while? Let us open ourselves up, shall we? Let us allow ourselves to be present to different ways of feeling that are happening at the very same time. Let us allow ourselves to open to the complex reality of our experience and not pretend to tame that wild cacophony with shallow stories. Let's flip the coin of life into the air and place our wager and see what happens. Heads or tails, you make the call. Let's roll the dice and see who wins, if that sounds fun for you. But in the process, let's choose not to shrink away from one another. In life, we must make choices. One guess will lose and another guess will win. But let's understand for a moment that the winning and the losing are arbitrary. It's meaningless when we are beholden to one another. Now, I remember one time in New Hampshire, I was playing a game of ping pong with a friend, and we were both learning to put English on the ball, to spin the ball this way or that, to bias the shot, and to gain an advantage. The top spin would force the ball to turn downward so you could increase the velocity, you could shoot harder. Uh, The backspin softens the bounce and draws the other player forward and forces the ball to cut down from the defender's paddle. The side spin curves the outbound ball back into the field of play. Now, we had so much fun learning and screaming out in strange sophomoric joy when we got it right. We were playing and laughing for more than an hour, and our friends came down, and they wanted to know which one of us was winning. Neither of us had any idea. I was setting him up so that he could practice his shot. He was setting me up so that I could practice my shot. Neither of us knew who was winning. The question stymied us, and our answers stymied our friends. And and there we were, winning and losing in some cosmic reality, one that truly ascended, one that was truly an excellent moment. Both sides of the coin still matter, no matter the outcome of the toss. The dismissal of the loser is our contrivance. We make it so, even though we pretend that it's otherwise. King delivered his Beyond Vietnam address in the Riverside Church in New York City on Tuesday, the April, April the 4th in 1967. It was both his highest achievement and his most costly mistake. He was driven to deliver this address by the events of history. Uh, by the end of 1966, the American uh, forces in Vietnam had reached uh, 385,000 men, plus an additional 60,000 sailors stationed offshore. More than 6,000 Americans had been killed and another 30,000 wounded in that year alone. 6,000 killed. 
In comparison, an estimated 61,000 Viet Cong had suffered that same fate. People of conscience felt compelled to respond. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King had been among them. He began by saying this. Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, I need not pause to say how very delighted I am to be here, how very delighted I am to see you expressing your concern about the issues that we will be discussing tonight by turning out in such large numbers. I also want to say that I consider it a great honor to share this program with Dr. Bennett, Dr. Kamager, and Rabbi Heschel, Abraham Joshua Heschel, some of the most distinguished leaders and personalities of our nation. I come to this magnificent house of worship tonight because my conscience leaves me no other choice. I join you in this meeting because I am in deepest agreement with the aims and the work and the organization that brought us here together, clergy and laymen concerned about Vietnam. The recent statements of your executive committee are the sentiments of my own heart, and I found myself in full accord when I read its opening lines, quote, at a time comes when silence is betrayal. That time has come for us in relation to Vietnam, end quote. This was a difficult moment for Martin Luther King. Still, he felt compelled to push through. He felt compelled by seven reasons. It had been his third reason that had been the most difficult. His third reason, his third reason for bringing up, bringing Vietnam into the field of his moral vision was his commitment to nonviolent social change, a commitment that had lost integrity, a commitment that was continually weakened by the deadly realities of war. Shaken but unbroken, King was led to a striking conclusion, and he was brave enough to share it plainly. His words were these. I knew, he said, that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos without first having spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government. For these words, some have argued, Martin Luther King paid a final price. Of course, not everyone believes this. This is one of many stories. Not long ago, in March of uh, 2010, King's Beyond Vietnam speech was the talk of the nation. National Public Radio's Neil Conan explored the subject on the radio with an honored guest. Perhaps you heard it, perhaps you remember. Conan said, in 1967, a year, ago, a year to the day before his death, Martin Luther King Jr. departed from his message of civil rights to deliver a speech that denounced America's war in Vietnam. The message directly challenged the president who had taken great political risks to support the civil rights legislation and also challenged the many of his colleagues in the movement who called it a tactical mistake. Tavis Smiley joins us today from Los Angeles. Tavis, it's nice to join you. It's nice to have you on the program. So. King had begun to lose some of his influence uh, against the increasingly dire backdrop of war. Tavis Smiley responded on the show, explaining that while most Americans are familiar with the I Have a Dream speech, most are unfamiliar with Beyond Vietnam. According to Smiley, it was the most controversial, controversial speech he ever gave. It was the speech that he labored over the most. 
King rarely gave speeches from a text. This speech was written and basically read word for word. King did not want to be misquoted or misunderstood. After he gives it, 168 major newspapers the next day denounce him. The New York Times calls it wasteful and self-defeating. The Washington Post says that he has done a discredit to himself, to his people, and to his country. He would no longer be respected, and that's just the Times and the Post. Lyndon Baines Johnson disinvites him to the White House. It basically ruined their working relationship. According to credible polls, nearly three-quarters of the American people, nearly three-quarters had turned against Martin Luther King on this issue. Fifty-five percent of his own people, black folk, had turned against him. This was huge, huge speech that got Martin Luther King in more trouble than anything else he had ever done. So go big or go home, right? Um, I beg your pardon here, I truly do. I do not mean to joke. Uh, it's just that this part of the history is difficult for me. Martin Luther King was just speaking his mind, speaking what he was compelled to speak. He had thoughts about human liberation that were larger than their bodily container. And 75% of us, we the Americans, and 55% of us, we the African Americans, simply could not forgive him for being that free. We couldn't forgive him, and some assassin took his life. It's incredible. He was fearless. He was ripped in the muscle of courage, meddled, steeled, hardened to his loving core. And right before his death, knowing confidently before his God that he had done his level best. He surrendered to the tossing coins of life, to the watercourse way of living, to the flow of his particularly powerful course of grace and havoc. He surrendered and he said, well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned with that now. I just want to do God's will. And he has allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I have looked over, and I have seen the promised land. And I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we, as a people, will get to the promised land. And I am so happy tonight. I am not worried about anything. I am not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And the next day, he was dead and gone so quick. And we were traumatized. And it would take some time for the poetry to come. But when it did, we sang. And Nina Simone led us. Once upon this planet Earth lived a man of humble birth. Preaching love and freedom for his fellow man. He was dreaming of the day peace would come to earth to stay. And he spread his message all across the land. Turn the other cheek. It's a great song. Sonia Sanchez led us on when she sang, Oh, great God, what a morning. The sun is rolling in from faraway places, and I watch it reaching out, circling these bare trees like a reverent lover. And I, uh, 
I hear your voice. Uh, I, I've been standing still listening to the morning, Martin, and I hear your voice crouched near hills, rising from the mountaintops and breaking the circle of dawn. As I point my face toward a new decade, Martin, I want you to know that this country still crowds the spirit. I want you to know that we still hear your footsteps setting out a road, setting out on a road cemented with black bones. I want you to know that the stuttering of guns could not stop your light from crashing through cathedrals. Great God, what a country. What a country indeed. Broken now in two by political rancor and divisiveness. And yet, is there not something that survives, that holds, that binds, although it is not yet tested and not yet seen? Is this not an opportunity to hold opposites together? What would Martin Luther King say? Now, more than ever before, we are forced to grapple with this particular issue because the state of our world today does not afford us the luxury of an anemic democracy. End quote. How will we now bring good health to our country? How will we overcome the challenges at hand? Fearlessness, I think. Fearlessness, gentleness. Fearlessness, gentleness, and grace. May we hold these within our hands and tell our story. May it be so.